this one. Thanks, Steve. All right, good morning. Well, it's definitely a different view from up here. Oh, because I get to look at you, hey? Yeah. <laughs> well, over the last, I suppose, month or even a bit more, I found myself spending a lot of time in the book of Romans. In fact, the first half of the first chapter of Romans, now and again I sneak a bit further into Romans, but God keeps drawing me back to the beginning, to this first half chapter. It's like God's been trying to say something. Now, at that time, I wasn't planning to speak here today, um, or even on this, but a couple of days ago, Tim came up and he said, Ben, has God put something on your heart that's burning there to get out? And I went, no. And then I prayed, and, and sure enough, God brought this, this chapter back. And um, here I am today, and we're going to get time to look a little bit at Romans, at least chapter one, mostly just the first half. So I'm not going to exegete all of Romans. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of how it all works. It's really good stuff. Feel free to study it on your own. But you know, it's always good to have a bit of an understanding of the Bible, of the book or the letter, before we read it. So I'm going to start with a bit of an intro, an overview of Romans, before we get into, into what I want to say. So when Paul wrote Romans, that is a letter to the churches in Rome... It was written to a church he hadn't visited before. It wasn't a church that he planted. But he did know a heap of Christians there. But you know, it was a church in a city that was full of disunity. They reckoned there were lots of little groups of churches, little congregations, you'd say, all around Rome. And they weren't getting on well. There were Jewish groups and there were Gentile groups. And the Jews thought that the Gentiles should really come along and practice what it said in the Old Testament law. And the Gentiles went, we don't need to do that. What are you on about? And so there was conflict. And we don't know anything about conflict in the church, do we? <laughs> Never, ever. Right from the beginning, there was conflict in the church. Because more than one person got together and different kinds of people. And so Paul wrote this letter to all of those churches, to all of those groups of Christians, with the specific purpose of helping them to understand the truth of the gospel and how that gospel can bring them all together into a place of unity. So Romans is a letter about how we become the people of God as a united people centered around the gospel that saves and we see this clearly in, in Paul's exhortation in chapter 15. So I did get to the end in five, verses 5 to 7. And this is what he wrote. There you go, it's up there. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, I've said I'm not going to talk through Romans, 
But this message is as much, I suppose, a study of Paul and Paul's why as it is the letter. And I think this is why I keep coming back to chapter one. Because God wants to highlight something in there. And that is the importance of the gospel in how we live our lives as a priesthood of believers. Because it's the gospel that saves. It is a gospel that brings us into the kingdom of God. So many people, Romans gives a nice, clear and concise theology. All good theologians know Romans well. Everybody who studied at Bible college has probably studied Romans because it gives good theology. Except Paul wasn't a theologian. That wasn't his calling. When Paul wrote Romans, he wasn't writing a nice, concise, systematic theology for us. Paul was a Christian. He was a servant of Christ. Just like you guys, just like me. Now, Paul was also a called one. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was an apostle even. You know, we give him a nice big title there, apostle. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? But you know, in modern terms, if Paul was here today, we'd probably call him a missionary or a church planter or an evangelist, maybe even a pioneer. Because Paul's heart was always for the growth and expansion of the church, for the preaching of the gospel. Paul was called to share the gospel. And that fact was no clearer to anyone than it was to Paul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we get, you know, in chapter 9, you get the conversion of Paul, of Saul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, and his life is changed. And after he was blinded there, and he's headed off to Damascus, and God comes to this man called Ananias, and he says, I want you to go to Paul, lay your hands on him, and restore his sight. And this is what Jesus said to Ananias. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Now, it would be years later that Paul and Barnabas would be called by the church Antioch and sent on what we call their first missionary journey. It would be even more years before Paul would write this letter to the Romans. But it didn't take long for Paul to start sharing the gospel in Damascus. In fact, Acts says immediately... I think we had a lot of immediately's last week, didn't we, Johan? Immediately, Paul started to defend Jesus, to declare that Jesus was the Son of God. So Paul had this calling from the beginning, from the moment he encountered Christ, to be declaring the gospel. But let's come to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. Okay? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David and who the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had amongst other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For it is the gospel, for in the gospel rather, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is, writ- that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it, really? I'm not sure how much you managed to take in on that. It's a long passage. I don't know, does anyone here like to use the Amplified Bible? Oh, a couple of hands going up there. Yeah, there's a few more. When I read some of what Paul writes, I feel like he was writing this Amplified Bible. He likes to add lots of words to explain and emphasis in the middle of everything else he says. He likes to explain. And that's not a bad thing. But sometimes, with all the extra filler, we can miss the point he's making. So I'm going to reread this passage, having removed a lot of those little explanations to see what we'd get. There's no slides for this, so you're going to have to listen. Let's try that one again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Through him, Jesus, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I long to see you so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. In this passage, we can see a little bit of Paul's heart, his own awareness of the purpose on his life, of the task that Jesus left for him. Paul says that he was called and set apart for the gospel. He was tasked to call the Gentiles, you know, those who are not Jews. He says he serves God by preaching the gospel. This is his service, this is his worship. He prays for the gospel, prays for the believers constantly, continually in intercession for the gospel. And he longs to impart 
to encourage and to have a harvest among the church, among the Christians, as well as those outside. And he is obligated to preach the gospel because of what Jesus has done for him. Similarly, if we look at what Paul has to say about himself in chapter 15, we see more of the same. So Paul starts this letter with his calling to the gospel. And he concludes it in a similar way. In Romans 15, 15 to 17, just two verses. He says this. Let's find it. Romans 15. I have written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles to the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So I would not build on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. Okay, that was a few more than two verses there. But um, I felt I needed to read them all. Now, chapters 2 to 14 of Romans aside, the reality of how Paul saw himself was a minister of the gospel. So here in chapter 15, he refers to it as a priestly duty. A priestly duty. The job of all of the priesthood is sharing the gospel. Paul had a specific calling to this, an apostolic anointing even, but he understood the priesthood of all believers. He understood that that job of sharing the gospel isn't just his. It's for all of the priesthood. And this is why he wanted to go somewhere where other people hadn't preached. To go where people hadn't heard the gospel already. He wanted to go to Rome, but he wanted to go other places too. And in fact, he says, I'm going to come to Rome on the way to Spain. Because no one's preached the gospel in Spain yet. Paul understood his calling, but he understood our calling to the gospel too. Why? Because as he wrote in chapter 1, verse 16, because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew and then the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for all people. And it's God's desire that all will be saved. This is the heart of God, just captured in a moment. The heart of God is that all people will be saved. All people. So let me stop and ask you a couple of questions. You don't need to answer, but think on it for yourself. What is the gospel? 
How do you understand the gospel? How do you go about sharing the gospel? Maybe a more important question, do you share the gospel? Do you know how to share the gospel? Some of you will be answering yes to some of them, some will be answering no, and that's okay. It's who we are right now today. But they're important questions to think about because we all have a task to share the gospel. For Paul, it was a reason for living. It was his reason for suffering. Now, when he says that, what he's really meaning is the salvation of other people is worth his suffering, is worth his being in chains, is worth his being jailed and flogged, and whatever else happened, ultimately martyred because the salvation of the people around him is so important. Is salvation of others sufficient reason for us to share the gospel? We tend not to suffer for it much here. Have we ever thought about that? So, what's the good news? What is the gospel? We're good at saying the gospel is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. But what is that good news? How do you articulate what that actually is. Christians these days, we're really good with theology. We have lots of options to go and study the Bible, to get a certificate, to get a degree in theology. That's good. Having good theology is not a bad thing. But you know, it's not the greatest need of humanity. Humanity's greatest need is not good theology. It's not good coffee after church, any coffee after church. (laughs) Our need of humanity, the greatest need, is the need for a saviour. Every single human being needs a saviour, even if they don't know it yet. And the gospel is the news of this saviour. The prophesied saviour, the Messiah, is here. And he's made a way for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's made a way for us to be saved from hell. Now, that's a pretty big word these days, hell. It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Even as Christians, it makes us uncomfortable. I can see a number of people squirming. Yeah, maybe it should. Maybe hell should be uncomfortable. Because it's not a nice thought. It's not a place we want to be. You know, we can be okay with a little bit of discomfort at the thought of hell. Because we're not suffering. I mean, we've escaped from hell, haven't we? We're not going there. Praise God. Praise God. But what about all those people out there who don't know Jesus Christ the Saviour? Hell is not a maybe for them. It's an eternity. Heaven is the opt-in program. Yeah? Heaven is not the default for humanity. You've got to opt in to heaven. But hell is the default. For all humanity, 
except through faith in Jesus Christ, there is no escaping hell. Even if we ignore it, even if we say we don't believe in it, the Bible tells us that is the default. It would be nice to think there was no hell. I would love to know and be able to say there is no hell. It does not exist. But if there's no hell, why do we need a saviour? Why do we need a saviour? All through the Bible, we see God mentioning what we call hell. And I don't mean spiky-tailed demons with the pitchforks having a party and living it up. Toss that image away. But don't toss away the reality of the final judgment and the hell that awaits those afterwards. John 3.16, we love that verse. For God to love the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that those who believe in him will not die and have, but have eternal life. And it speaks of those who do not believe in Christ as perishing. In chapter 3, verse 36, he says that God's wrath remains on them. Daniel, chapter 12, spoke about the end times. And this is what Daniel wrote, the, the prophecy was given to Daniel. From chapter 12, verse 1. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We like the stars, we like the righteousness, we like the shining and the brightness of heaven. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus in Matthew 25 spoke about eternal punishment being thrown into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That image is similar to what we find in Revelations where John foresaw the judgment and the lake of fire. Revelations 20 verse 14 says this, The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life it's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah. Today, there are billions of people all over this planet who have no idea about the gospel, who have never, ever heard of Jesus Christ. You know, there are tens and tens of thousands of them here in Launceston who have never, ever heard, or have heard but do not know, or know a little bit but have never encountered the gospel or Jesus Christ for themselves. I was one of them once. Probably you were too. So who's going to tell them? Who's got that task? Paul's not around anymore to do it for us. But isn't this the task that Jesus left with his disciples? Now, I'm not suggesting we all start sharing Christ by giving a good hellfire sermon. Probably not the best place to start. But there needs to be a point when we acknowledge that elephant in the room. If we are being saved, we have to be saved from something. Now biblically, that something is what we call hell, that lake of fire, that second death, that eternal torment that awaits those who have not accepted Christ. It's obviously important we be really wise in how you share that. You know, make sure you've got a good relationship going first. Make sure they're in a place to hear it. But we can't not share it either. 
we can't not have a clear gospel. Just the other week, I'm sure as many of you guys, I was at the test celebration with Will Graham. And I was listening to him preach. And I was there for the whole thing, so I heard him, what, four times or more. And coming away from that weekend, my big takeaway, and there's a number of them, you know, 500 people making a commitment, that was awesome. But I walked away and I thought, man, his gospel message was clear. And it was. Each message was different, but they had a clear gospel message. A clear message of humanity's state of sin, of their need for a saviour. He didn't pull the punches, but he also didn't condemn or judge. He pointed each time to himself as a sinner and one in need of a saviour, just like everybody else. And isn't this the crux of the gospel? The prophesied Messiah has come to save and reunite humanity with God in his kingdom. And Jesus is the gate. He is the way in. Otherwise, we only have eternal damnation awaiting. See, the big truth is the practical need of every human being is for a saviour. And this is behind Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, it's behind Paul's entire ministry. And it was the motivation for Jesus' ministry too. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, this whole salvation thing was the purpose of Jesus' incarnation. His birth as a human, the whole point of the Mosaic law, of the sacrificial system, of the promise to Abraham, of the fulfilment of God's curse on the serpent in Genesis 3. It is Christmas, it is Easter, and it is the second coming. Everything we read in this book we call the Bible is about this one thing, salvation of the people who God loves and bringing them into his kingdom. Forgiveness of sins and salvation. Psalm 103 gives us such a good image of what God has done. I want to read a few bits from there. Verse verse 2 to 4 and then 8 to 12. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus didn't come to set the foundation for modern Western civilization. He didn't come to change human politics or ideology. He didn't come to end world hunger, injustice, or human slavery. These were good things, but they're not why Jesus came. He came to set us free from slavery to sin and death and its consequences, to save us from that lake of fire. The gospel is the greatest cause in history. Jesus came to go to the cross, to open that door into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is near. How often do we read that 
in the New Testament, in the Gospels. These words kept leaving the lips of Jesus. Every time he taught, every time he did a miracle, the kingdom of God is near. Do we understand the meaning behind that? It was never a statement. It was always an invitation. The kingdom of God is near. Come follow me. Come in through me. There is an invitation to the entire world. To the Jews who are waiting for the messianic kingdom, it was an invitation. To the rest of us Gentiles, it was still an invitation. The door was open to us too. The kingdom is here and Christ is the gate. So the gospel is not just a warning to escape hell, but it's an invitation into God's kingdom through the Saviour. Again, coming back to what Paul wrote in verse 16 of um, chapter 1 of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew and then the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This was Paul's calling. To declare the gospel. But it's the same commission given to all the disciples. It's the purpose of the church, the priesthood of all believers. This gospel is unchanged. It's been 2,000 odd years since Jesus hung on that cross, since he rose to life. And the gospel has not changed one tiny weeny bit. It's never ceased. It is still the same. As a church, we've got this awesome vision that keeps coming up, the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel 37, and the resurrection of the righteous. God's people being raised to life. Whose bones are they though? That's the question I I get. When you imagine Ezekiel 37, and all those bones coming back to life, and the flesh being put back on them, and the day of righteousness is there. Whose bones are they? Are they the bones of the Jews? few thousand years ago? Are they our bones? Are they the bones of the people around us? They're no one's bones apart from the gospel. They're the bones of those who have accepted Jesus Christ. When it comes to us, to our lives, to our families, our friends, our neighbours, our co-workers, are there bones in that picture? Do we see them in the light of the gospel as needing a saviour? Are we as the body of Christ walking in the peace of the gospel? Are we declaring it as we should? Are we inviting other people into the kingdom of God with us? Because proclaiming the gospel is not just Paul's calling. This salvation is God's purpose, God's plan, God's sacrifice. And the desire of his heart is that all people will be saved. And his desire is that his bride, the bride of Christ, the church, will join him in declaring this good news. Will join him in making this happen. And like Paul, let's not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God 
to bring righteousness and salvation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you for what you have done, Lord, in our lives. What are you doing in lives across this world? Throughout all time, drawing people into your kingdom. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid. And thank you for the privilege it is to have your gospel, to know your gospel, and to be able to share it with other people. Thank you for your power that resides in your words, that resides in what you have done because of who you are. And as we worship and as we praise and as we honour you, we ask that your gospel will go out through us, Lord, to us, beyond us, and that you would bring a harvest from among our city, among our friends and our families, from among the people around us, and across every nation. Lord, inspire us and call us to share your gospel. Grant us opportunities even with what little we know, of little we are, that you would give us opportunities to speak your life to others and that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction because it's all about you, that you would bring conviction when people hear those words and that they would know their need for a saviour and turn to you. So call us, Lord, send us out. Use us for the sake of your gospel, that your heart's desire to see people saved. Grow your church and your kingdom now. In Jesus' name, amen.